Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Green Minds podcast. I'm Moritz, and today I'll be joined by Jacob Nathan, one of the founders of Epoch Biodesign. Together with his co-founder, Douglas, he founded the company in 2019 to take on one of the biggest problems of our time, plastic waste. Plastic itself is one of the main products of the fossil fuel industry. We currently create around 240 million tons of plastic waste annually, making up 12% of the global waste and also making it the single largest non-biodegradable waste contributor. Nowadays, polymer waste is mostly incinerated for energy production or lands up on landfills, with only a small percentage being mechanically recycled. Jacob and his team have therefore set out to develop a new way of how to reuse the different components of plastic by extracting them with the help of enzymes. These are basically little proteins that can speed up chemical reactions. And so what is already happening naturally in our bodies each day, Epoch Biodesign is basically looking for specific enzymes that can support in the process of polymer recycling. Besides the technology, Jacob and I talked about his journey to becoming a climate tech entrepreneur, the role plastic plays in our day-to-day -day life, and where the recycling industry is heading in the foreseeable future. Plastics have played an immensely important role in the more recent economic boom that society has experienced in the last couple of decades. But what role can and will they be playing in a decarbonized world? How can we leverage the great benefits of plastics and other chemicals without harming the environment? And with that, welcome, Jacob. Happy to have you on the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Um, before we jump into, into Epoch and the technology guys that are developing, uh, let's maybe take one step back for a second. Uh, maybe start with how you got into the plastics industry. I mean, in the end, you're around the same age as most of my peers at Imperial now, but have already raised capital from well-known impact investors out there, such as Lower Carbon Capital, but also MCJ. So without giving you my full life story. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm a bit of a card carrying uh, Gen Z. I sort of realized that quite at an early age, you know, we're destroying our planet, we're, we're cutting down trees, we're polluting our atmosphere. I really, we shouldn't be doing these things. And like, this is the uh, one of the biggest issues of our time. And that now is our chance to, to solve it. Um, and so when I was younger, I sort of spent a lot of time in, in nature, built up this kind of real love and appreciation for the world around us. And that sort of morphed into then this feeling of, you know, okay, we're destroying the planet. What 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 could I do to to try and push us onto a slightly different path? And so going through going through school, that meant doing things like leading the sustainability council, uh, protesting outside the houses of parliament, trying to convince all my friends to go vegetarian with me, that mostly unsuccessfully on that last part. Um, and then I was given this opportunity during my final year of school to take a research class. My teacher said, look, you've done your chemistry, done your biology, uh, come up with a project, research it, present your findings at the end of the year can, can be about anything. Yeah. 
given my environmental focus growing up and then uh, the fact that I had also done sort of quite a few beach cleanups in the preceding summers. And this was also around the time that Blue Planet 2 came out and there was a lot more awareness for, for plastics as, as, as an issue more broadly. I knew I wanted to do something in the environmental space for this project um, and then kind of more specifically in, in plastics. And I'd given a lot of thought as to kind of why we have this plastic problem, why we can't deal with all of the waste that we're generating. Um, when looking at it, I, I realized there's kind of two sides to this equation, right? One is we just make way too much of the stuff and use it for some of the silliest applications imaginable. But actually, even if we cut back our usage of plastics and we limited them to kind of, you know, the, the only the applications where they're really needed, where they really bring a benefit, uh, we still don't know what to do with all of the waste that we're generating. But we definitely don't know what to do with the 10 billion tons that are just kind of sitting around uh, taking up space. And so when looking at the plastics problem, I, I realized there were kind of some core challenges to overcome. One was technological, right? So there is, you know, we, we talk about plastics as plastics, but when yeah. you look more closely, there are so many different kinds and they're colored differently, they're layered differently. Um, these are a real technological challenge to sort and recycle that that's part of the challenge the industry faces today. But actually then, if we take a step back and look at the economics of the industry, um, the kind of harsh reality is that in many cases, it's just not profitable to recycle plastics. So mm -hmm. kind of unsurprisingly, nobody really wants to do it. And so I thought it would be good if you could take all of these kind of mixed plastics, all these different types, and you could actually turn them into something that was valuable, right? And um, that had sort of an offtake market, but really most, and all of these different uses, but really most importantly, value. And so I thought that if you could take these plastics, you could turn them into chemicals that could then be reused to make new plastics or uh, formulated directly into new products, new materials. And really, it, it, it didn't actually matter from my perspective that was going to be really exciting. So I knew from my biology background that an enzyme, a uh, biological catalyst, it's this little sort of nano machine that makes all these chemical reactions happen. Yeah. Um, I knew that that was the most efficient way to do a chemical reaction. So that was my research project to, mm -hmm. to try and find a plastic eating enzyme. So, so what you're saying is that the fact that we're only recycling around 14% of, of the gold plastic has nothing to do with from a technological perspective that we wouldn't be capable of recycling the polymers, but rather from a, from an economic perspective, or does it have to do with both? Um, it's a combination of a, of a huge variety of different things, actually. It's, it's really complex. So the, just to begin with the 14% figure, um, yeah. a lot of the data and stats around plastics are very murky. 14% is kind of the most optimistic uh, recycling rate, but that's actually, when you look at it, in many cases, um, 14% is the amount of plastic that is sent for recycling, but it's not necessarily the amount that is recycled. When you dig into that number, you get 9%. Sometimes you get as low as 2%. Um, but the reality is we just don't recycle much and we, we need to kind of work to solve that problem. Now, the question is, why don't we recycle much? Well, yes. part of it is a, a capacity issue, right? So is there enough, are there enough recycling facilities in the world for the amount of plastic we have? No. So we need to build more of them. So uh, mm -hmm. it's a financing question and sort of a desire to build those things. Uh, it is technological. So really there are only commonly two types of plastics that are recycled. PET, the stuff you get in a Coca-Cola bottle, uh, is usually turned into things like textiles, carpets, these types of things. Uh, and then high density polyethylene, the stuff you find in like a milk carton uh, yes. is often turned into sort of different things. Now, part of it is the just 
issues associated with sorting all of the different types of plastics that you're putting mm -hmm. into your recycling bin, uh, getting them into a pure enough form where it's then profitable for recyclers to convert that into post-consumer recycled material. Uh, part of it is also the quality of that material. So naturally, these post-consumer plastics, they contain contaminants. They are not sort of necessarily perfectly suited for the applications. So uh, often, unless you have really tight controls over your feedstock, if you try to make a coca-cola bottle out of 100% recycled pet uh you know the you'll have coca-cola seeping out of that bottle which doesn't really work from from their perspective so oftentimes what you get is a sort of 30% recycled 70% mm -hmm. virgin polymer blend um so it's kind of a technological challenge in terms of actually getting high enough quality material out the other end to make something valuable it's a sort of sorting and collection question it's a capacity question um and a lot of that can be supported by policy. A lot of that can be supported yes. by consumer demand. And we're beginning to see the effects of that take place. Exactly. And because in general, I would argue plastic itself is, is a great product. It's helped society get a long way. Uh, so it's more of the question, okay, how can we, how can we have, the, have the benefits of using plastics without having these significant downsides that we see all around the world, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's an incredible material. It, it's basically made the second half of the 20th century and, 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 and so far the 21st century possible, right? So everything from enabling sort of uh, surgeries to happen, storing medication, increasing agricultural productivity, reducing food waste. Uh, all of these things are only possible with, with plastics. But like you say, there's, a, there's some pretty huge negative externalities that come with the overproduction and then mismanagement of, of that material. But it's a pretty awesome thing. Absolutely. Talking about the problem, that's basically where your technology then comes into play, correct? I mean, you describe yourself as a company as combining the last 30 years of progress into computational and biological sciences to solve the biggest climate challenges. Now, what exactly does that mean uh, using computational biological sciences? What exactly do your enzymes do that make this technology work? Absolutely. So um, over the last 20 years, we've seen some pretty exciting advances in, in our understanding of an ability to manipulate biology. So if we go back, just for one example, if we go yeah. back uh, 20 odd years, human genome project, $3 billion, years and years of work, I uh, think, you know, just warehouses full of these massive DNA sequences, just, just crunching through the numbers to try and enable us to decode the human genome, right? But, you know, mm -hmm. what are we? What, what are the instructions for us? Fast forward to now, and there are companies making a $100 human genome available in an afternoon. Um, and so DNA sequencing, if you look at this cost curve, has dropped precipitously um, multiple orders of magnitude, uh, much faster than Moore's law over the last 20 years. Now, why that's important is it allows us to look very deeply and observe very deeply these highly complex biological systems, right? If we just think about yeah. the best way to describe biology is like um, an alien UFO lands in your backyard <laughs> with, you know, such incredible technology that we can't even comprehend. Um, I mean, that's basically biology. It's the most advanced technology on the planet, right? So our ability to kind of observe and look at this, this phenomenon, this, this technology has, has massively increased over the last 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. Our ability to write DNA, uh, so using a technology called DNA synthesis. Again, this has dropped multiple orders of magnitude in, in cost. Um, and then we have the sort of, 
you know, the advances of, of computing over the last 50 years, reducing dramatically in cost, increasing dramatically in, in power, um, that enable us to take all of this very complex biological data and actually do something with it, right? So yeah. that's through a combination of just more compute power, but also new AI models and sort of understanding of machine intelligence as well. And so at Epoch, what we do is we're combining all of that progress with a little sprinkle of new scientific insight and, and creativity to design enzymes, these biological catalysts that make all of these amazing um uh, reactions happen very, very quickly and with very high precision to do lots of different things, specifically in this case, to look at breaking down these kind of unrecyclable plastic wastes. Uh, yeah. So what that looks like in the lab is uh, we have a team of computational scientists who create a set of designs, a set of blueprints on a computer through a variety of different methods, which are then built using uh, high throughput automation and robotics in our lab. We then test all of our different designs to see which enzymes work, uh, which ones don't. And then we take all of that data and we feed it into predictive modeling to design the next set of enzymes, which we think will have a higher performance so that we can build them, test them and learn from them again. We, we repeat that cycle until we have something that performs the way we want it to. And how can I envision this, the whole process? When you talk about it, I think big reactor, plastic goes in, something else comes, comes out of it. But I assume the entire process is probably way more complex and way, way more structured. Um, so when it comes to actually breaking down plastics and turning them into chemicals, I mean, that's basically it. It's a process that's very similar to fermentation, the way we, yeah. we make beer. Um, specifically, though, we use a new type of fermentation called cell-free fermentation. Um, this has a number of benefits. It's potentially more scalable. You have greater yields of kind of feedstock to output. Uh, and it's kind of how we've, we've designed our process. So essentially what we do is we take the plastic waste, we shred it up into small pieces, we put it into a big steel reactor, we add our enzyme to close it up, let it digest for, for a while. Um, and then what we're left with is a, a mix of different chemicals, which we can sell into a variety of different use cases, applications, or they can be kind of further processed and upcycled into sort of even more valuable things. Okay, so, so they can be used for new polymers, basically, but also all kinds of, of different applications. But the question that I then have is, we, of course, we have our plastics, we recycle a certain amount of it, we discussed that beforehand. Um, but how exactly is the technology then saving carbon emissions? Where's the saving potential? So whilst we recycle, you know, sort of uh, a small percentage of plastics yeah. and can kind of save CO2 emissions by avoiding the production of new plastics, the vast majority of this stuff goes to landfill or incineration. Mm -hmm. uh, so incineration, sure, you're making some electricity, but at the end of the day, you're burning hydrocarbon that's going back into the atmosphere. And that's kind of what we'd like to avoid. Uh, from the landfill perspective, eventually these things do decompose into either methane or, or CO2, uh, or they leak into the environment and potentially negatively impact the ability for natural carbon sinks to sequester carbon. Uh, this is not sort of very well understood phenomenon yet, but it's kind of fair to say that they're not having a positive impact on yes, uh, our, our planet's ability to sequester carbon. And so the question is, how can we avoid all of that from happening? So the plastics that we're focused on are the things that are going to landfill, are the things that are going Mm -hmm. incineration right these are uh, the materials that are creating co2 it's sort of every step of their life cycle so what we say is okay well let's displace incineration let's completely let's ignore that yeah. let's take these these materials and let's make chemicals from them and because mm -hmm. we're making chemicals from the plastics it means we're displacing fossil fuel extraction it means we're not making chemicals uh, from newly extracted uh, well dead dinosaurs right yeah so we avoid all of that extraction all of that refining all of those kind of high energy processes 
And so what we see is that when we do some kind of basic life cycle analyses on the different molecules that we make, we can create chemicals that have upwards of a 75% CO2 reduction uh, when compared to how we would make those chemicals today mm -hmm. uh, using oil or gas. Because the majority of the carbon emissions basically lay in the ext entire extraction process and how we process that, correctly? Exactly. So for, for plastics, they, they create CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas yeah. emissions at every stage of their life cycle, uh, all the way from kind of production use and end of life. Uh, for chemicals, well, it depends on the molecule, but at the end of the day, they're sort of massively damaging uh, mm -hmm. highly emittive processes that also create a lot of waste that isn't necessarily CO2, but could be sort of, you, know, you can have kind of cyanide based uh, oxidation processes for making chemicals. And so, you know, these are, these are quite nasty molecules that we don't really want to have a lot of sitting around. Of course, of course. And when we obviously then compare your technology to exactly that process, are there any significant byproducts that basically come out of when you, when you extract your chemicals, anything that you've seen that you would not want? So there's nothing we've, we've seen so far that kind of gives mm -hmm. us a uh, cause for concern. At the end <laughs> of the day, there's always going to be a little bit of waste from these processes. You know, there might be some leftover sort of dyes from the plastic that we can't quite process, or maybe a little bit of stuff left over at the end. But all of this can be fed back into kind of secondary valorization processes. And uh, really, we're expecting that we'll get as close to a zero waste process as, as possible. Yeah, no, that makes that makes sense. You briefly already touched upon that you you are focusing on polymers that are currently not part of this very small percentage that is already being recycled. Where does the technology then stand today? What polymers are you able to recycle, and do you have others where you say, okay, currently not able to, but we see the biggest impact potential in HPE or others? Yeah. So the polymers we're focused on today come under a sort of broad umbrella term known as polyolefins. Um, mm -hmm. And so these are polymers that are built on these very, very stable carbon-carbon bonds, which are very hard to break down. It's one of the reasons why if you throw this plastic into the environment, nothing really happens because yeah. nothing in nature can break down these, these chemical bonds. Um, and so cumulatively, polyolefins are, account for upwards of 70% of global plastics mm -hmm. production. So we've, we've got our work cut out for us instead of focusing on these. And really, this is where we think the biggest impact is, is to be had. So um, high-density polyethylene is, is the most widely recycled polyolefin. But even today, it's sort of single-digit percentage recycling mm -hmm. rates. It's very, very low. However, it can be processed using existing mechanical recycling technology. You know, we want to be really clear with how we're positioning ourselves, which is, you know, yeah. we're not competing with what already exists. We don't want to. We want to be a part of the, the kind of solution for all of this other stuff that just isn't recycled today. And so we're focusing as a starting point on flexible polyethylene films. Uh, so these are quite hard to process using mechanical recycling because of their, their mm -hmm. flexible properties. They're found in things like salad bags or, or uh, grocery bags. And they're also used in industrial applications like um, uh, we lay polyethylene films across agricultural fields uh, mm -hmm. in order to create a little microclimate in the soil. And at the end of the season, uh, all of this stuff is, is landfilled or incinerated because it's got a bit of dirt on it. And so it can't be processed any other way. And um, so that's kind of where we're really focused today. Our sort of dream solution yeah. is that we're going to be able one day to take a mixed, you know, bag of, of 
a mix of different plastics, you know, pick anything, right? Any Whatever's yeah. coming out of the sorting facility, we can put it into this reactor, we can turn it into something valuable. Maybe that's a set of chemicals that have kind of direct applications and use cases, or maybe it's just breaking down the plastic to then feed to a secondary fermentation process to make something that's sort of purer and of value. And that's really where we'd like to get to, because if we can essentially move further upstream in, in, in the plastics value chain and say, okay, well, sorting is maybe not required as often, which means we can then unlock new types of waste streams that previously mm -hmm. just been too hard to process. You know, that's that's the dream. That's where we'd like to get to. That's where that's where you're heading. Um, now, obviously, including me, a lot of people are always obsessed with new kinds of technologies, everything that's developed, being developed out there. However, obviously, your company, you are out there to get to commercial scale. So where do you currently stand, basically? Who are your potential clients and what is the feedback you've been getting from the, the entire recycling industry now that a new player basically is on the field? Yeah. Um, and this has been the really great thing for us is I, I actually can't think of a customer conversation we've had where we've been told, yeah. no, actually, this isn't interesting or you know, <laughs> this isn't for us, right? Which is exactly you know, what, what, what one wants to hear. So the way we kind of position ourselves is, is really as an enabler to both the chemicals industry and the, the mm -hmm. plastics industry, right? So yeah. uh, we're saying sort of on one side, look, you have a bunch of plastic waste. Right now you're paying quite a lot of money, depending on where you are, for this to be sent to landfill or incineration, right? This is a, mm -hmm. this is a cost to you. And also you have this sort of horrible public image because you're pumping a lot of plastic into the world and your customers actually care about this now. Yeah. So don't worry about paying for landfill or incineration, right? Give it to us for cheaper or for free. And, you know, we'll, we'll take it off of your hands. Now, those mm -hmm. are sort of, those are the, the sorting facilities that have all of yes. this waste they don't have offtake partners for. Those are the sort of the, the post-industrial players who have all of this waste that would otherwise go to landfill incineration, sort of a variety of different people. And this spans across many, many different industries as well. Uh, we then take that plastic, we convert it into chemicals in our process. And the way to think about these molecules is they're like, important platform building blocks that mm -hmm. can be used directly in different applications uh, or can be processed into all sorts of other things. So I think everything from cleaning products in your home to, to you know, the new plastics that are going to sort of package those cleaning products, right? Uh, which again means that we can sell the same molecule into a variety of different industries. And so we're engaging with everybody from, you know, the, the, the FMCGs all the way through to multinational chemical companies, uh, agriculture companies, uh, paints and coatings and, and sort of a huge variety of different industries. And what we're seeing is that there is very, very real demand for lower carbon, more sustainable chemicals that, you know, ultimately don't come from fossil resource, uh, but also yeah. don't come from things like palm oil and other mm -hmm. bio-based feedstocks, which, yeah, on the face of it, you know, aren't oil and gas, but have potentially um, Still not some great. other things. Exactly, exactly. Some other things that we need to be keeping in mind. And so, you know, where where we're taking these things is um, mm -hmm. uh, sort of building a new um, a new story for the consumer. So, you know, we've yeah. we've we've gone to the store and we've bought packaging that's you know partially made from recycled plastic. Uh, but what the consumer hasn't seen before is is you know zero waste ingredients or circular chemicals and um, these sorts of new things. And so for some of these companies, not only do they have kind of the sustainability piece and sort of can begin to reduce their scope three emissions and their supply chain, but also thinking about well actually why is this a USP to me? Why is this interesting from a brand perspective? And how can I then sort of capture our, our customers' imagination using this this kind of storytelling piece? Because 
Yeah, uh, what we benefit from with the plastics problem is it's very tangible. It's very real. People can visualize it and understand it in a way that CO2 is kind of this invisible, fluffy thing that we kind of know is there, but is really, really hard to conceptualize. Mm -hmm. And obviously at scale, you're, you're planning to be very much price competitive with other, the regular chemicals, especially as you're sourcing is way cheaper than from the existing players out there. But where do you currently stand on the price competitiveness? Are you already working with companies at that scale or are you, are you still in that, in that development phase? Yeah. So if we maybe sort of point to where we want to be and then we yeah. can kind of work backwards to where we are today. So where we want to be at scale. Um, and in this case, you know, we don't need to be building multi-billion dollar infrastructure, we can have much more decentralized production. So scale potentially looks different in this case. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, once we get to where we want to be, uh, we will be cheaper than fossil fuels. We don't mm -hmm. rely on any level of green premium. We don't rely on any sort of carbon credits or anything like that in order to make this cost competitive. We will simply be the cheaper option. It just happens yeah. to be more sustainable. That is our framework for thinking about all of this. And frankly, I think the framework that you know a lot of, if not all of these kind of green technologies need, need, need to think about. So we have a number of scaling steps to go through from you know between where we are today and, and, and where we want to be tomorrow. And so what we're focused on is that kind of scaling process. Now, when we, when we think about cost, uh, one of the biggest drivers of cost in our process is the enzyme itself, right? It's a yeah, biological process. Exactly. That's our catalyst. Um, and so there are kind of two main ways that we can drive down that cost and really and sort of increase our profit margins. One is we can create a better enzyme, one that breaks down plastic faster in any given period of time, which means that we can use less of it. Um, and then the other is looking at the actual production of, of the enzyme and just making that as cheap as possible. So uh, engineering microbial factories to just make loads of this stuff at a very low cost. And so those are the kind of the two things that we're, we're most focused on today. So I, I mentioned a little bit earlier about this kind of set of biological engineering tools that we've developed. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're applying this set of tools to, to take our enzyme, to optimize it, to make it faster. Um, and so to do that, we run many tens of thousands of like micro scale experiments in parallel uh, versus yeah. a few sort of larger scale experiments. In the new year, we're beginning to look at sort of the first steps of scaling the process, looking at sort of producing pilot quantities mm -hmm. of, of chemicals to then send to our customers beyond the sort of very small quantities that we're working with today. No, that makes, that makes absolutely sense. And I mean, I think we've established that you're a big plastics expert, but um, when we take a more broader look, where do you see the entire plastic market, but also plastic recycling industry heading? Are there, would you say there are other technologies out there where you say they are as well great because, uh, I assume the plastic industry is, is so immensely big that there will not, it's not a winner takes all market where we'll have one technology that, that will just do everything, but we'll have different applications and different technologies out there. Or do you have a different perspective on that? Um, I think as with anything, it's such a huge and complex issue that there will be no silver bullet solution because it isn't yeah. one size fits all by definition. I think there's a few different things at play. So one is that, uh, you know, save for events of the last nine months or so, fossil fuels have been going out of fashion, right? That's a longer term trend. And it's going to continue, right? Which means that, okay, well, we still have a bunch of oil and gas in the ground. And how are these companies going to think about exploiting that? Well, the answer is to move towards non-combustibles. So, you know, whilst we're all going to buy electric cars and we're going to decarbonize aviation and do all these amazing, wonderful things, of course, um, we still need chemicals. We still need plastics. <laughs> we need these to make the world go around. And 
whilst we are, there are a bunch of amazing innovators building new approaches and new pathways to these same molecules, we're going to be extracting refining these for the foreseeable. So uh, oil and gas players investing very heavily in non-combustibles, which means investing mm -hmm. in plastics production capacity, which means more plastic. If we sort of map this out to middle of the century, we'll be at about uh, four times the production levels of 2015 uh, in terms of the amount of plastic made by 2050. So much, much, much more plastic. Now, the most optimistic scenarios that I've seen and mm -hmm. say that about half of that will come from renewable sort of bio-based resource. Now that could be things like bio-based polyethylene, right? So a traditional polymer, but just made from a different place, or it could be a totally new material that's biodegradable and wonderful and has all these amazing properties. And that sort of in itself is a, a whole other uh, <laughs> conversation in terms of how these things are named and, and, and what they really mean. So I think what we'll see is a continued expansion in plastics production overall. Uh, a continued yeah. expansion in fossil derived traditional polymers that, you know, that's going to continue. We will see more and more sort of next generation polymers that have maybe better health or environmental mm -hmm. properties come onto the market. But I think they will remain very expensive for the foreseeable and at the end of the day may even complicate the issues we have in recycling by adding a new material into yes. the mix. The sort of jury is still out on this one. On the recycling side, I think we're going to see a combination of different things. So expansion of uh, mechanical recycling capacity, we'll see a new kind of AI driven and robotics driven sorting systems going into material mm -hmm. recovery facilities to enable more plastic to be recovered from the post-consumer uh, sort of stream. And then we'll also see a combination of sort of biological recycling processes, you know, companies like ours looking at polyolefins, but also biological recycling processes for PET, a number yes. of companies that are working on this now. And then we will also see some chemical recycling processes. So using things like pyrolysis, solvolysis, glycolysis, basically various methods for returning uh, these kind of post-consumer and, and post-waste polymers into something that can be used to make a new thing. So in short, we're going to see a lot <laughs> of different solutions on the recycling end, a lot of different solutions on, on the production end as well. So I sense you have a rather positive outlook on the industry. As well, I, I think it's always, always great to hear, especially every time one is basically dealing with the climate crisis, it's very easy to fall into this almost like rabbit hole thinking that we have to do something, but there's not enough happening. But when you talk about what is happening out there, I sense that there is actually quite some hope that at least for the plastic industry, we've got the technologies or we're developing the technologies to get where we need to be. Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're still in a lot of trouble and we need to yes. be working 10 times as hard as we currently are. I think, you know, before starting a company and before sort of entering this world of, of entrepreneurship and sort of crazy outlandish technologies that people are building. I was very pessimistic. Um, mm -hmm. I really felt that there wasn't enough happening. I didn't really know what to do about it. Uh, when I was meeting people building, yeah, some of the most outlandish approaches to solving these problems who also had customer contracts and massive investor backing and were really, you know, it wasn't just an idea, they were doing it. And that to me really sparked some, some real hope, right? There's just a lot of incredibly smart driven people who are working to solve this problem now. As I say, I think we need to be doing 10 times as much, both from a sort of uh, business and technology perspective, but also from a from a policy perspective. You know, they, they work hand in hand. The way to think about it, right, is like government policy is going to make breakthrough technology cheaper, but breakthrough mm -hmm. technology is going to make government policy cheaper. It's, it's a virtuous cycle. It will work at the same time. Um, 
but I think that there's a lot of cause for hope and a lot of businesses to be built in solving some of the biggest problems of our time. And a lot of investors are beginning to wake up to that and beginning to change how they're deploying their capital as a result. And I mean, now you've been founding such a company that is exactly building such a technology. When we come back to Epoch, what are the next steps? Where are you heading in the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months? Are you growing your team? Absolutely. So uh, we've got a really exciting kind of 12 to 18 months. We've got a, some really cool milestones that we're going to be hitting shortly on the science, which enable us to then sort of take things to the next level from, from a commercial perspective as well. Uh, we, we are hiring. So, you know, shameless plug, check out our careers page for our open roles. Uh, if you don't see any that fit, we have an open application and we'd love to hear from you anyway. Um, oftentimes the role that we hire comes from just finding a really exciting mm -hmm. candidate that we're really pleased to meet. So uh, please, please don't hesitate to apply if, if that's you. And yeah, there'll be some big news coming in the next few months. So stay tuned for that. Exciting, exciting. Um, yeah, with that, first of all, thank you very, very much for being a guest on the Green Minds podcast. For everyone out there, as always, you can find links and sources and the show notes. It's been a pleasure, Jacob. Thank you very much. And looking forward to the exciting news. Brilliant. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you.